This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking prior permission from Libri Fellowship. We'll find our text in the book of Matthew, in the 16th chapter, beginning with verse 28, and running on in the 17th, parallel passage, of course, which we've already read in our scripture reading, in the gospel according to Mark. This really is one unit, beginning with the 28th verse of the 6th chapter, and running on through the 8th chapter of the 17th verse. The chap- uh, eighth uh, verse of the 17th chapter. I'm sure most of you realize that when we speak of the inspiration of Scripture, we're not at all ever referring to the division of the chapters and the division of the verses. That this has nothing to do whatsoever with the inspiration of Scripture. That these ver- uh, verse divisions and these uh, chapter divisions were added very much later. And they were added by men, and many of them are poor. Uh, we need chapter and verse divisions because we need some point of reference to be able to say we will read from Mark so-and-so and so-and-so as we did in our scripture. But except for these as a reference point, in reality, there are hindrances in the reading of the Bible because often they bring us up to a stopping place at the end of a chapter which isn't a stopping place at all, which really should flow right on into the next chapter. And that's very especially true at this particular instance. So we read, Merely I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the kingdom of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days Jesus taketh Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, uh, let us make, or I will make here, three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud (coughs) overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. Now this passage is very rich in many, many different ways. And is filled with, you can think of the wonders of the transfiguration of Jesus. The first thing to notice is the space-timeness of, of this. That the supernatural is not separated a long way away from that which is space-time. This is not some idea of a philosophic other. It isn't merely a religious thought within our head. It is something that actually happened in a space-time situation. The spaceness is clear because these men walked up the mountain as one would walk up an inclined plane. And there was no break in the walking up the mountain. 
They did not come to a sudden place where they stepped out of normal space. Time continued because when they came down the mountain, they found that life was continuing in a normal way at the foot of the mountain. If they had had watches on their wrists, which of course they did not have, the watches would not have stopped at a certain point. It was space and it was time. And the supernatural event that took place here, the transfiguration of Jesus, took place in this uh, relationship of a space-time situation, a very, very real situation. The supernatural was not a long way off. The supernatural was at hand. And this is very, very important to understand, because in reality, this gives us a complete worldview. The understanding that the supernatural is not far off is at hand, that there is not a dichotomy between the space-time world and the supernatural, that the supernatural is not just something inside of our own heads, it is not some form of a trip, it is in reality something that has relationship to the normal space-time world. Now let us look at the second point, let us look at Moses and Elijah who were present. Elijah had been translated 900 years before. This means that Elijah had never died and going to heaven with his body. In contrast to this, we have Moses, who had died approximately 1,500 years before him. So we had someone in the Old Testament who had died, and someone who had not died. And notice that in neither case were they merely a wisp of vapor. They were not merely, as many modern cartoonists would draw someone who is dead, merely a, a sort of a ghost that could come in through a keyhole. It isn't this at all. They had re there was reality about them as individual persons. They could be recognized. There could be communication between them and between the apostles who were still alive naturally upon the earth. And what we have here, therefore, is a preview of something that will happen to each of us if Jesus does not come back first. And that is, we will die. And when we will die, there will be a time in between our death and the resurrection of the body. And in this here, as we look at the Mount of Transfiguration, we can have some indication of what we can expect for ourselves in between these two points of our physical death and the resurrection of our body. We also will continue as personalities. To be absent from the body is to be home to the Lord. We will continue to be able to be in communication with each other there is no reason to think of us after we're dead as merely a wisp of, a wisp of ghost-like material. No, as we look at Moses and we look at Elijah here, we have a preview of our own future time between death and the resurrection if Jesus does not come back before we die. But also we find at this particular place in the Transfiguration a preview of that which was going to happen to Jesus because Jesus was going on to die. Jesus was going to die, and then he was going to be raised from the dead. And as we have here this happening in history, so also his physical resurrection after his death happened in history. It was, a future, it was future to him at this particular moment, but it was going to happen in the same kind of space-time history that the transfiguration was happening in. Once more, we must understand that that which was taking place was not merely, was not merely uh, something uh, of a spiritual nature. 
If you're going to use spiritual nature in contrast to that which is real. The modern liberal theologians have what they call realized eschatology. And by this they mean that the eschatological statements of the Bible, the prophetic statements of the Bible, have nothing to do with future history. They only have to do with looking at the world in an optimistic way now. That isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says that as Jesus was transfigured here on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was a real historic space-time event. The same thing was going to happen when Jesus died and rose from the dead. His resurrection was not merely something which was internal in the minds of men. It was something that was going to be external in the external world, in the world of history. As we stand here, we see Moses. And Moses represented the Old Testament dead. Moses represented the Old Testament dead. Because after all, he had died in the Old Testament way of those who were looking forward to the coming of Jesus. We have the apostles here who are the New Testament dead because the apostles are all dead. Now, when we turn around and we look, however, at uh, Elijah, we find a very different situation. It seems to me we have a representation at this particular place of those who will be translated in the future. Let's go back to 2 Kings, the second chapter, and think of the translation of Elijah into heaven. 2 Kings 2, 9 through 11. And it came to pass when they were gone up that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what, thou, what I will do for thee. Behold, I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon thee. Just in passing, I would say, he is not asking for twice as much of the power of the spirit as Elijah had. He's asking for a double of it, a, a, a carbon copy of it. The French word do would be the parallel here. He's asking for a life portion, not twice as much as Elijah had. And he said, thou hast asked a hard thing, nevertheless, if Thou, if thou see me when I am taken up from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked. And behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parting them both asunder. And Elijah went up in the whirlwind into heaven, and Elijah saw it. Now here we have a picture of the translation of, a mo of Elijah into heaven. At a certain moment of history, suddenly he was taken with his body, without death, into, uh, into heaven. Now it seems to me here on the Mount of Transfiguration that we have then a third category of those who will be present at that great coming future resurrection day. There was Moses, and as I say, he's in the Old Testament dead, represents the Old Testament dead. There we find uh, the apostles, and they have all died and they represent the New Testament day. But let us be careful to remember that the Bible makes very, very plain that on the great day of resurrection, there will be a third group of people, a third, uh, th a third group of people which will be completely separated from those who are dead and, and distinct from them. And that is the Christians who will be alive at the time when Jesus comes back again. And we could think, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 51 through 54. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible shall put, when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But notice it's going to happen in the twinkle of an eye. How fast does it take to twinkle the eye? What is the first step in the complex of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which lies still in the future to us? It will be that those who are alive, who are Christians, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. They will have the same experience in some way as Elijah had in his translation. We also find in Thessalonians the same sort of an emphasis. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now the liberal theologian says that Paul made a mistake here, that the word we in that 17th chapter indicates the fact that Paul expected to be alive at the coming of the, coming of the Lord Jesus, and therefore he made a mistake. Not so. They're completely wrong. What he is saying is something else much more profound and much more important for the people of God who lived from the time of Paul until the time when Jesus comes back again. And that is he's saying every generation should be waiting on tiptoe for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a generation who will be alive at that time and the we, whoever they are, we who are Christians, whoever they are, will at that time suddenly be changed. They will be changed, as it said in the Corinthian passage, in the twinkling of an eye. So this book, this time of the rapture, really is something very profound, not only to study as history, but something to study as a matter of hope to ourselves. That on that great resurrection day, the Old Testament dead who look forward to the coming of Jesus will be there. The New Testament dead, who look back to the coming of Jesus, will be there. And those Christians who are alive at that given moment will be there as well, to be raised from the, from, to be raised from the dead, or to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. But after we've talked talk to the space-timeness of it, and after we've looked at the wonder of Moses and Elijah being there, and not being just a wisp of vapor, and after we have looked at the coming resurrection, of the Christians, and seeing that there is a real preview in this, uh, of that great day when Jesus comes back again, we must realize that in reality none of these things are the wonder of the moment of transfiguration. There's only one central wonder at the moment of, of the transfiguration, and that is Jesus himself. And so we find back in our 17th chapter of Matthew again, which is our chapter for today, the thing and the matter really closes when we read in the 8th verse of Matthew 17 and when they lifted up their eyes they saw no one 
say Jesus only. It's only Jesus who stands at the center. These other things are great wonders. The things we've already discussed stand as marvels and something we can spend hours and hours and hours meditating upon. But when we get all done with the whole thing, we must understand that the real wonder of the fair is the factor of Jesus and Jesus himself. So we find this emphasis in the 8th verse of the 17th chapter of Matthew very strongly emphasized that it is Jesus and Jesus only who stands at the center. Moses is God, Elijah is God, and Jesus is the only man left. Notice that there are many reasons why Jesus is the wonder here and the center of the whole thing. Not the least of which is which is given in the 5th verse when we read God the Father saying about this one, and this is my beloved son, and this is my beloved son. Here is deity. The Lord Jesus Christ is more than a man. And the Father here in one of these places, as in the time of baptism, chooses to point out the uniqueness of Jesus and who he is. There is real deity here. This is not just a man. Notice also in the wonder of Jesus, that he is the center, in the center of the conversation that takes place between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. We could ask the question, surely, uh, uh, that is, uh, what conversation would be worthwhile to hold at such a spectacular moment? If suddenly Moses and Elijah had met together on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, who is God as well as truly man, what is this worth talking about? And if you turn to the book of Luke in the ninth chapter, Verses 30 and 31, the subject of the conversation is clearly given. Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, or he should accomplish at Jerusalem. There was only one topic of conversation that was wonderful enough for that moment, and that was his coming death upon the cross in Jerusalem. Nothing else, nothing else was great enough for the conversation of this spectacular, tremendous, and high lifted up moment. Why is that? Why would Moses and Elijah be talking about Jesus' coming death? It's very simple. It's because they had a stake in his death. Moses and Elijah, as Old Testament saints, looked forward to the coming of Jesus. But if Jesus had not come on and died upon the cross, all their hopes would have been nothing and fallen to the ground. The Old Testament people of God looked forward to the coming of Jesus, and their hope was rooted in the same place where our hope is rooted, and that is his historic space-time death upon the cross, his atonement, his substitutionary death, Without this, there is no hope for us, but there would be no hope, no hope for the Old Testament saints either. So what we find is, what we find is that all of us have a part in that substitutionary death, all of us who are Christians. We remember that John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, though he is recorded in the New Testament, you remember his introduction, and that is, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. The introduction was central to his atonement, to his coming substitutionary death. And here, his death of Jesus talking on the cross, his death was also the uh, talking, pardon me, upon the Mount of Transfiguration, 
the subject matter was exactly the same, and that is his coming death, his coming death upon the cross. Turning back to the back of Matthew again, we find this emphasis in the second verse of the 17th chapter, and he was transfigured before them. Here we have, here we have a preview of Christ's coming resurrection. A preview of Christ's coming resurrection. It was his same body with which he went up the mountain and the same body that came down the mountain which was transfigured and glorified in their presence. And when we come to the resurrection of Jesus as he died after his death and he rose from the dead, the same thing is true. It was exactly the same body that was died and was placed in the tomb that came out of the tomb. It was the same body same body. So his body was glorified with Jesus as he was in the Mount of Transfiguration, but it was coming, it was a preview of the great glorification of his body after his death. The Mount of Transfiguration was only a preview of what the reality would be. Jesus had died and he rose from the dead and it was the same body. So just as it was the same body on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is equally also the same body after Jesus' physical resurrection, a body that could be touched, a body that could eat, a body that was, uh, could, have, uh, could be seen, but at the same time, a body that could pass easily between the seen and the unseen world. It changed body, but the same body. A body that could eat, a body that could be touched, and yet for 40 days and 40 nights, innumerable times, we know not how many, he passed backward and forward easily the seen and the unseen world. So here on the Mount of Transfiguration we have uh, a prefiguration as it were, a preview of this glorification that should come to Jesus after his death and then at his resurrection. And you must not forget that his ascension, it was the same body, the body glorified, the body that could be touched, the body that could be eaten, the body that could eat, that suddenly went off into heaven. And then by this formal departure of going up into heaven and being received in a cloud, nothing more wonderful really than had occurred for the 40 days of passing from the seen to the unseen world at will, yet completely finishing his work, officially his ministry, as his baptism had begun his ministry. All this is, prefig is prefigured as it were in the Mount of Transfiguration. But you must remember that this glorified body of Jesus which, had, which was, could, be, could be seen and could be touched and could eat after his uh, crucifixion and after his death, uh, but after, subsequent to his resurrection, the same body exists now. And at least three men have seen him. The first was Stephen when he was done. And Jesus stood up. The heavens opened and, Jesus, and Stephen could see Jesus. And this same Jesus stood up to welcome him into heaven. The second man that we know from the scripture, uh, who clearly saw Jesus after his resurrection and then his glorified body, uh, is, uh, was Paul, or Saul. And we find this recorded in the book of Acts, in the ninth chapter, verses 1 through 5. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and asked of him <coughs> letters to Damascus to the synagogues. That if he found any of this way, that were men, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
and he journeyed, and he came near to Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto them, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said unto him, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now it is not told us here, but it is told us in another account of the book of Acts that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue. So what we're told here then is this glorified Jesus after his death and his resurrection. This glorified Jesus had the same body in the same way that Jesus had the same body on the Mount of Transfiguration, but glorified. And that Paul saw him and the Christ in the same body spoke to Paul in the normal literary categories of a normal language. Not some heavenly language that nobody could understand, but the normal categories of a normal language was that wherein Paul heard Christ speak, this glorified, this glorified Christ. Now we find this is, there's a third man that we know about in the Bible who saw Jesus after his resurrection, and that is the Apostle John. And much later, on the Isle of Patmos, and on the book of, in the book of Revelation, in the first chapter, we have the description of this glorified Christ as Paul, as uh, John saw him on the Isle of Patmos, many years later, actually. Now, one thing you want to notice as we read this are the words such as like and as, when it says that his hair was like white like wool. It's not saying that he had wool for hair. What it is is a descriptive phrase in which the glorified body of Jesus so stood there in wonder before the Apostle John that John is wrestling with some way to put in the human language uh, that which would make us understand the glory of what he saw. So the word light and as are very carefully applied. Now let us read these verses and see this glorified Christ as he was seen on the Isle of Patmos. Verses 14 through 18. And his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like undefined grass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the voice sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining and when I saw him, I fell down, and his feet is dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one that became dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So here is this glorified Christ. The Mount of Transfiguration, the prefiguration of this which should occur at the time of the resurrection, in which Jesus is glorified. And as I say, at least these three men have seen him in a glorified state after his ascension. Seen him with the same body. Seen him with the same body that glorified. Stephen, Saul, and uh, John all bear testimony to this. Now turning back to the 17th chapter again of Matthew in the 8th verse, let us notice again this tremendous emphasis on the fact that it is Jesus only. Jesus only who stands at the center. And they saw no one. They saw no one save Jesus only. Only Jesus stood in the center. And now let us be careful here. 
It is not Jesus standing in the center in contrast to the Father and the Holy Spirit. That is not what it is. It is not a Jesus-only movement in the sense of some Unitarian motion in which the Father and the Holy Spirit is depreciated. It is not this. It is as no human being save Jesus only. Jesus stands with the rest of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is not that we should fast our eyes upon Jesus and forget the Father and forget the Holy Spirit. It is rather that we should fix our mind upon God and, uh, and, uh, the, and Jesus uh, as the second person of the Trinity uh, and not fix our mind centrally upon any man. It's not to be fixed upon any man. It is to be fixed upon Jesus only. It was in their view, it was Jesus only, and in our view, in our whole life, it would, should be the same. It should not be our mind should not be centered upon a man or men. It should be centered upon Jesus only. Now let's think how Jesus is the center. First of all, Jesus is the center of all time. He is the center of all time. We must remember that he is greater. He is greater uh, than all space-time continuum. And he is greater than the space-time continuum because he existed before the space-time continuum. So we're told in the New Testament that he existed before the foundation of the world. But it's not only that he existed before the foundation of the world, but he was the creator of the space-time continuum. So in John 1, 1 through 3 we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Bible makes very plain in the 14th verse that the Word was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things became by him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. So he is the creator of all. Jesus only because he existed before the space-time continuum, but Jesus only because he was the creator of the space-time continuum. You notice it is not, it says, not says that, it's in the, that the world stands in an eternal becoming. Those of you who know current philosophic and current theological discussion. It is not a continual becoming. It is an aorist tense here. The world became by him. The universe became by him. That which was not came into existence and now is. Jesus only in the sense that he existed prior to the creation of the world, but as Jesus only also that he was the creator of the space-time continuum of the universe. And it should not only be so as an intellectual concept in our mind, but also we're to understand that from the fall onward, Jesus became the center in a very personalized way to every man who understood correctly and bowed before God. Because in the Old Testament, we immediately have the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. And what we find is that from that time on, everybody who was really doing what they should do were looking forward to the coming of this one. Now then, on the other hand, we now look back to this one. And we must understand that in the province of God, history is divided throughout the whole known world now by this dating system of A.D. of A.D. before our Lord and B.C. or after our Lord 
and B.C. before Christ. Oh, the whole dating system in the world is this. Jesus stands in the middle of time even if a man doesn't believe every anything. Bernard Russell, when he signed his letters and dated them, he dated them according to the dating of the Lord Jesus Christ. Russia makes its dating the same way. The Jewish synagogues that deny that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah may put another date upon their cornerstone, but in their everyday life they must date their letters upon the basis of the fact that Jesus has come and Jesus stood in the center, Jesus stood in the center of time. Even the Antichrist, when he comes, will be dated as to his coming, as to the moments of the time uh, according to the coming of the Lord Jesus in his birth and his life and in the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection. So Jesus is Jesus only in the very real center. He's the center of time. He's the center of time. So the Christian is not a man without an integration point in time. One of the terrible things about modern men is the fact that they have no integration point for time. And therefore they live in the theater of the absurd. They not only live in the theater of the absurd, modern man lives in the theater of the absurd because he has no reference point for time. It is not so for the Christian. Things began at the creation. Things are dated at the time of that great, great moment of redemption as Jesus came in time. And not only that, but the Christian looks forward to a future reference point in time, which likewise, which likewise gives us something that keeps life from becoming absurd. And in 1 Corinthians we read, for example, in the 11th chapter of the 26th verse, as he is speaking there about the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. And we read, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. He stands at the center of time. His creation of all things, the beginning of the space-time continuum. All the world dates its letters from the great moment of his ministry upon the earth. And the end of the time to which we look forward, not the end of all, of all sequence, but the end of this era, also is clearly marked. Each time we meet together and take the Lord's Supper, we should have consciously in our mind looking back to the coming and to the death of Jesus on the cross, but forward to his second coming. And so time is in perspective. The Christian is not one who lives in an absurd world without time being in his proper place. But we must realize that it's not only that he's the center of time, he is to be the center, he is to be the center to us individually for justification. If we do not have Jesus standing at the center of our justification, we are not justified. If we do not have Jesus standing at the center of our salvation, we are not saved. If any humanistic element is brought into our justification, we are still lost. We are still lost. It is Jesus and Jesus only for my justification, for my salvation. But it's not only Jesus and Jesus only which stands at the center of my justification. It is Jesus and Jesus only who stands at the center of my knowledge. The book that is, has been given. And Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh, the revealer of the Godhead bodily. And so we find back in this 17th chapter again of the book of Matthew in the 5th chapter. And in the 5th fifth, fifth chapter, in the second, last part of the verse, hear ye him. 
Hear ye him. He is to be heard as the giver of knowledge. As we cannot have any a humanistic thing at the center of our justification and be justified, so also we cannot have anything but God at the center of giver of knowledge and have true knowledge. We can have bits and pieces of knowledge, but there'll be unrelated bits and pieces of knowledge. What we need, what we need is to know bits and pieces of knowledge which we see from the world about us and in our thinking. We need it related to their ultimate relation points and to their own into their ultimate relationships. And this needs the authority of God Himself. So is Jesus only not only for my justification, but Jesus only along with the written scriptures for my knowledge. Or if it isn't this, I become I become a wanderer in the midst of the knowledge of the universe which surrounds me, the bits and the pieces. But also he is to be the center not only of my justification and the giving of knowledge, but he's to be the center of my sanctification, of the present aspect of salvation, of the Christian life. True spirituality centers in the work of Jesus. It does not center in myself. True Christianity is, does not cause man to be forever living in introspection, as though the solution for a Christian life and true spirituality is rooted in constant introspection. It is not so. The Bible always takes us for our sanctification, and it says if you want to know what true spirituality is, you must be looking outward from yourself to Jesus. When I sin, it is Jesus who can forgive me again on the basis of his shed blood, which he shed upon the cross. When I want to bear Christian fruit into this poor world, as I must, there must not be humanistic elements of my justification, there must not be humanistic elements in my sanctification. It is looking unto Jesus, existentially, moment by moment, day by day, that he would bear his fruit through me into this poor world. So it's Jesus only for my justification. It's Jesus only for my integration of knowledge. And it's Jesus only in my sanctification. Now, in practice, we should psychologically live this, live the way, live in the factor that it is Jesus only in the midst of the Christian ministry as well. The Christian worker is indispensable. I'm sorry, is dispensable. It is only Christ who is indispensable. You remember John the Baptist in John 3.30 where he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Only Jesus is Lord. Now this is not saying for a moment that any one Christian worker ever takes the place of another Christian worker. It is not that we become a floating chip upon the stream and do not matter. We matter a great deal. We are not interchangeable. So I have used the phrase, the phrase that Christian workers are, are dispensable. But in a way, this is not true as far as actually getting a certain job done. No Christian worker ever exactly does the work of another Christian worker. Each one of us, our personalities are valid. Our, our particular service is meaningful in this world. It is unique. Nobody else can do what you can do for Jesus. Nobody else can do for what you can do for Jesus. But thinking of it ultimately, we must realize that to finally, either through desertion or by death, 
The Christian worker puts down his task and it's Christ who is the center of the work. So on one hand, every Christian worker is unique and yet on the other hand, no Christian worker must stand at the center of the work because eventually, as I say, either through the Christian worker's desertion of his task or because he dies, only Christ will continue at the center. You can think, for example, of Paul, how strongly he emphasized this, where he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And when some of the people in the Corinthian church fell into the era of, of exalting the Christian worker too profoundly, rather than exalting Jesus, we find Paul speaking very, very strongly to this in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, 6, and 7. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, 6, and 7. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom we believe, ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Yes, the important, the, the worker is important. He is unique. And yet at the same time, he must not become the center. And all through the history of the Bible, we have this emphasis. We have this emphasis. And that is, that as one servant lays down the work, another servant was always there by God to pick it up and to carry it on. So we can think, for example, that Cain killed Abel. Did this kill the end of the ministry? Did this end the ministry? No, because quickly a Seth was born. Abraham, a great man of God, but he came to the end of his days and there was an Isaac there. Isaac, carrying on, digging his father's well. And we find that Isaac laid down his tusk and that Jacob was there. Jacob grew old in Egypt, but that Joseph was already in the place of leadership. Joseph died in the due time of Moses came. Moses died and that Joshua was at hand. Each of these men were different. Each carried on a specific ministry. In no case did the man who followed them carry on exactly the same ministry as the man that preceded. And yet God's work in the external world was carried on. It was God who was at the center and not the individual men. You can think in the book of Judges. Every judge was different and yet every one judge followed after another. We find that Eli. Eli at the end of his life, poor man, became shaky and unfaithful. He was not fully faithful, but there was a little boy, Samuel, waiting to carry on the work. There was a Saul who was completely unfaithful, but there was a David, prepared of God and ready, ready for the work. A mighty Elijah finished his work, and there was a man, Elisha, ready to serve in a quieter vein, and yet serving in a quieter vein, yet nevertheless carrying on the service there in the northern kingdom. And in the southern empire it was the same. And Isaiah came to the end of his prophetic ministry. But if Jeremiah was ready to raise his voice in the same southern empire, there was a Jeremiah. But when Jeremiah was finished, that didn't mean that the message was finished because there was an Ezra prepared. And after an Ezra, uh, uh, an Ezra prepared, and a Daniel, immediately following along, right after the historic moment of Jeremiah. And after we find that Daniel was finished, there was a Zerubbabel ready to carry on. And after a Zerubbabel, an Ezra. And after an Ezra, a Nehemiah. And after Paul, Timothy. And a multitude of ordained elders. 
one carry on exactly like the men proceeding. Every man has his individual place in the ministry. And yet in every place it must be God is the center and Jesus is the center. And it is not that the worker is the center. And this must be the practical psychological set of my mind. For a lifetime I must realize I have a unique ministry to be faithful to, to the calling of God, whatever it is. And so do each of you, whoever you are. A ministry that nobody can fulfill but you. And yet, at the other hand, no Christian worker must stand as the center. And we must not psychologically put ourselves as the center. It must be Jesus as the center and Jesus only. Now, what takes what would stand in the place of Jesus and be in the way? What would stand in the place of Jesus and be in the way? Well, many things would come and place themselves as counterfeits in the, in the center of that which places itself in the center, which is an abomination in the center. And, of course, we can think immediately of the totalitarian state, the authoritative state, placing itself at the center. We can think of our discussion last night, and as I said, that I believe what is coming is there's an establishment leap coming to place itself at the center of history and of our states and of our country. Oh, we Christians must reject this. The totalitarian state or the authoritative state must not be at the center. It is Jesus and Jesus only at the center. But equally, let us not forget, an authoritative totalitarian church is not to place itself at the center. Any church that places itself between the individual and God is wrong. It is put itself at the center when only Jesus should be at the center. But you may say we come from a low group, low, from low churches, from assemblies and low, low, uh, low groups in this sense, ecclesiastically. We do not view the church as the center. We view Jesus as the center. Oh, but I would say, my friends, it is one thing to say this in theory. It is quite another thing to practice it in practice. Because there is nothing that has been so disruptive to the work of the Lord Jesus as the fact that an evangelical work, very often human leadership, some man puts himself at the center instead of Jesus being at the center. And in its own destructive way, perhaps for the work of the Lord Jesus, this is more destructive than a totalitarian state or a totalitarian church. You must remember the words of Paul. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? The ministers by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. Human leadership is not to stand in the center. Does this mean there is not to be human leadership? Oh no, the same Paul makes it very plain. There is to be human leadership. But the human leadership is not to stand at the center. Jesus is to stand at the center. It is to be profoundly, profoundly the reality. Profoundly the reality that in practice as well as in theory, it is the fact that Jesus stands at the center. But there are other things more subtle that come in and place themselves at the center instead of Jesus being in the center. And we can think of that of any, any phase of Christian work that, self put, that puts itself at the center or that is projected into the center rather than Jesus. We can think of a, of a congregation being caught up in a building program. And I've seen this happen time after time, where a building becomes the center of the work of the Lord Jesus instead of the Lord Jesus himself. Oh, Lord, it's always destructive. 
A building is needed sometimes, but the building must never stand at the center. The building isn't everything. The building is only a tool. The building is only an instrument. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that must stand at the center. But it isn't only, it isn't only a building, but some of us who believe in the purity of the visible church, we can so put this principle, which is a right principle, I believe, from Scripture, we can so put it in a place of exaltation that it takes the place of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is a totalitarian state and a totalitarian church and say no. It must face very subtle things and say no. And perhaps most of all, perhaps most of all, we must understand that any doctrine must not become placed at the center, except the doctrine of God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that they exist and they are. This is the only central doctrine. Doctrines, though they're right in themselves, have a way to be come to the center of men's integration, may becoming the center of men's preaching, and the integration point of their preaching. So that the preaching becomes like an automobile bumping down the road with one flat tire. Bump, 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 bump. One of these doctrines, but it could be anything. The Baptist, the man who is the Baptist, can put the, his concept of baptism at the center until indeed Jesus is the Trinity to squeeze to the side. The Presbyterian can put his concept of predestination at the center until the concept of God and the things of God are squeezed to the side. Yes, any, any subtle thing, any subtle thing that takes the place of the central makes become central and the integration point rather than God himself. These things become false. These things then become misplaced. And as I say, uh, like, a, like a car bumping down the side of the road. But finally, I would remind you that maybe the most subtle thing of all at the center rather than Jesus is myself. This is the most dangerous, perhaps, of the whole, and the easiest in which to fall. Back in that Matthew passage, as Matthew, we looked at seven, beginning with six, uh, 1628, in the same 16th chapter, just a few verses before the beginning of the, uh, of the transfer, transfiguration of Jesus. We read in, in Matthew 1624, then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What he's saying here, it isn't that you don't have value. It isn't that you're to forget that you're made in the image of God. It isn't to forget that you and every man has dignity. It's not, it's not that you will forget that God thinks so highly of you as a unit of, 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 of a total personality that he is going to raise the body from the dead. It's none of these things. It is not that you are to play down yourself beyond where the Bible says man is in his marvel as being created in the image of God. But on the other hand, I must be very careful that I'm not a descendant. And I want to tell you, from my own Christian experience, it's very easy, easy, not only, not only in some open way, but a hidden way psychologically to make myself the very center of all things, including my Christian work. I can think of sin, and of course it is wrong when we put sin at the center and make it, make it something for which we give, we press all things. But it isn't only when sin is at the center, it's when that I, I personally 
place myself in a personal humanism and I view all things as it were with myself at the center instead of Jesus being at the center. Oh yes, when we talk about Jesus and Jesus only, we must realize there are very subtle forces that we must ask God's help to stand against as well as the more obvious ones of a totalitarian church and a totalitarian state. For Christ, for the Christian, it must be. For the Christian, it must be. In contrast to all men, and in contrast to all that God has made, and especially in contrast to the centrality of the name, for the Christian, it must be, not only in theory, but in practice, by the grace of God, that there is no man save Jesus only. Shall we pray again? Our Heavenly Father, we come together and we ask that you will take this study from your word and make it very real and precious to each one of us. You know us, our Father, in our weakness. And you know us out of the background out of which we come. And we sitting in this room, though a small group, represent a very wide background, the spectrum of men. Some of us coming from very much non-Christian backgrounds. Some of us coming out of the background very much of being caught in the 20th century world and its pitfalls. Some of us are Heavenly Father coming from Christian backgrounds. But we know that no matter where we've come from, and even though we're Christians, we never get to the end of the reality of needing to us that this may be a lesson which we studied this morning which will be real to us not only in theory and practice. We stand thanking you, O God, for the wonder of the transfiguration. We thank you that the supernatural is not far off, but the supernatural is near at hand. We thank you, O Heavenly Father, for how wonderfully it's a preview of the fact of what's going to happen in the future uh, for our coming resurrection. We thank you. We thank you for the wonder of Jesus and his glorification. We thank you that it's this glorified Christ who is alive now, not just an idea in our minds, but in reality he exists. This glorified Christ that could be touched, that could eat, and could be seen. He's there in the unseen world. We thank you, O oh God, that Stephen and Saul and John saw him. We thank you for those things. We ask, O oh God, that indeed, indeed, not only in theory but in practice, that Jesus may be the center of all time to us. But Jesus may also be the center of not all time, only time to us, but he may be the center to us in practice as our justification as the giver of knowledge that gives us the integration of the knowledge which we have into the surrounding world. That he may be the center to us in our sanctification. No God, may it be real. And to us, it's Jesus and Jesus only as the center of the world. Being thankful that you use each of us with our personality. Being thankful that we are not zero. Be thankful that it was not just so many slots in God's work. And one man after another is forced into that slot, regardless of his personality and regardless of his gifts, both natural and, sp and spiritual. We know it's not so. You lose it, as no one else can be used uniquely for our place and our calling. Yet we thank thee, our God, when the moment comes for us to lay down our task, and may it be always by death for every one of us in this room, and never by desertion. We thank thee, our Heavenly Father, the work is not ended. But it goes on because it's Jesus and Jesus only. 
Help us to stand against those things, O oh God, that thrust themselves into the way and would take the center, the centrality, instead of Jesus being the centrality. Help us to stay and resist the growing emphasis of a totalitarian authoritative state. Help us, O oh God, always to turn our back upon an authoritative totalitarian church. Help us, O oh God, not to fall into a totalitarian leadership where one man takes the place, or a group of men take the place of Jesus among God's people. Oh, help us, our Father. Most of all, and above all other things, keep us from putting ourselves at the center. And if we're being honest this afternoon, this morning, we will acknowledge that there isn't a single one of us in this room who are Christians, who at some time or other does not <coughs> fall into this infamous thing of putting ourselves at the center, of making ourselves at the center, rather than Jesus and his glory. Forgive us. And may we do better. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say what a pleasure it's been to have a time of real fellowship with your pastor and his wife this afternoon. And Edith and I have found it a real joy. And he has asked now that I say something for a few minutes to you. <clears throat> and I've wondered what would be most helpful. But in turning it over in my mind, perhaps the thing I would want to say is this. And that is, if we're going to really reach our generation, I'm convinced that we need to have four things. And these four things could be developed at great length uh, into a little booklet or something like this. So I must hurry through to mention all four. But the first one, it seems to me, is that we must have a very clear doctrinal content especially on the central things of Christianity, there must be no compromise. None whatsoever, and especially no compromise with uh, the neo-orthodoxy that surrounds us on every side. Neo-orthodoxy basically is that which would say they believe the Bible where it speaks religiously, but does not believe the Bible, do not believe the Bible where it speaks, where the Bible touches history and the cosmos. This I think we must really reject if we're going to have a voice in our generation. The second thing we must do is also uh, that we must have another kind of content, and that is a clear intellectual content. People often think that it's more spiritual to say to people, don't ask your questions, just believe. But when I examine what the Bible says, this is not what the Bible says. Once we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we must realize that Christ is the Lord of the whole life. And being the Lord of the whole life, he's, Lord, he's the Lord of all truth, and not just a small section of truth. Consequently, he is the Lord of the intellect, as well as the intellect, uh, Lord, well as Lord of uh, what we might say, in a more limited way, is spiritual, though the intellect ought to be spiritual too, in that it's under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the Lordship of Christ. But insofar as the Bible is really truth, in the very profoundest sense of that word and touches all of life under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, we must realize that the intellectual questions can be asked. The Lord is interested in the whole man, not just a part of the man. He's interested in the whole man, and that's the reason the body will be raised from the dead. It's not only in the future when the body's raised from the dead that he's interested in the whole man, but he's interested in the whole man at the present time as well. This means the Lordship of Christ should cover the whole of life, which would be the creative portion of life and the cultural portion of life and the intellectual portion of life 
as well as that which is more usually called spiritual. The third thing we need, and this is really very profound, profoundly needed, is though we must put a total emphasis on the fact that the intellectual is to be brought under the Lordship of Christ, at the same time we must emphasize that Christianity is something more than just an intellectual system. The Christianity is to mean spiritual reality. So there must be some form of true spirituality in our life as well. It won't be perfect, and we're not perfect in this life. <clears throat> and yet people looking at us must see that there is a reality. We can say it's something like this, and that is Christian Christianity may be expressed in propositions, but we mustn't just stop with the propositions. We must go on into love the Lord with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and be in relationship with this Lord. Something of the reality of knowing the day-by-day -day forgiveness of specific sins on the basis of the blood of Christ and something of the reality of Christ bearing his fruit through us. So now I've talked about two contents that are needed. The first is the content uh, of a clear doctrinal position, and though I didn't stress it in speaking of it before, the practice of that position in uh, the religious cooperation that we practice and so on. If we say that Christianity is true and other things are false, and specifically liberal theology is false, then this must show itself in the type of religious cooperation which we practice and the places where we must say no. The second content was the content of honest answers to honest questions. Uh, the third thing was a reality, a spiritual reality. And then we must have as a fourth reality, if this generation is going to listen to us, the reality of some beauty, of human relationships. We're to show forth that we really do understand the people are made in the image of God, and as such they have dignity. And we're to deal with them this way, wherever we touch their lives. And especially when it comes to being in Christian communities, that we should have some reality uh, of showing forth an orthodoxy of community. So a few years ago, if someone would have asked me, I would have said, uh, <clears throat> and asked me the question, where shall I go to church? I would say, well, find a Bible-believing church. But now I would add something else. I would say, find a Bible-believing church. There ought to be an orthodoxy of doctrine, but there should be a second orthodoxy, an orthodoxy of community. And our churches ought to be something more than merely preaching points and activity generators. In reality, our churches and our fellowships should be places where there's true community among us, those of us who are brothers in Christ. And that this true community should reach into every part of life, all the way down to caring for each other and our material needs, as well as everything else. When we examined the early church, we found that this was the kind of a church they were. They had an orthodoxy of doctrine, and they practiced that orthodoxy, but they also had an orthodoxy of community. So they cared for each other in all the aspects of life, including the material things of life. Now, it's my very, very strong conviction that in an age of disruption such as ours, in an age of chaos, that if we really want to be heard by a generation so lost as ours, so caught in something that is just as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah or ancient Pompeii, that our message must be well-rounded. And I would repeat, I think there's two contents and two realities. The first content, a clear doctrinal content, and the practice of that content. The second would be a clear content 
and giving honest answers to honest questions. The third thing would be a reality, a deep spiritual, a true spiritual reality, though it will not be perfect in this life. And the third, re and the third, uh, the fourth point is the second reality, and that is a beauty of human relationships. For those who are not Christians, because we know they're made in the image of God, and therefore they have value and dignity, something modern man doesn't know about himself. But especially when we come to our Christian communities, that this would be exhibited in a true orthodoxy of community among us.